Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be in the book of John. So turn there with me to John 11. And we're going to be reading verses 1 through 44. So please give your careful attention to the reading of God's word. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her, uh, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Uh, for, uh, in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Mary said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, 
She went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And he said, Oh, excuse me. Uh, they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had came out, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's say amen together. Will you pray with me as we come to consider God's word? Father, we do say amen, especially at the end of that reading where we hear this wonderful story of the resurrection of Lazarus by the power of the word of Jesus' voice. And we recognize, Father, that all of that was in declaration that he is the resurrection and that he is the life and that in him and through faith in him alone, we have life everlasting. And so, Father, would you speak to us this morning from your word, and would you give us great confidence and great hope and great joy. And Father, may the, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight as we come to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So having on Good Friday having celebrated our Lord Jesus Christ's victory over sin, which was accomplished by His death for us on the cross. Today we come to celebrate His victory over death, which was accomplished by His resurrection from the dead on the third day. And as Paul so 
clearly and so boldly proclaims in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which Michael read for us at the beginning of the service today, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The New Testament uses the word sleep very often as a euphemism, a figure of speech for physical death. We see that here in John chapter 11 when Jesus was talking about Lazarus. Paul does it there too in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20. He also does it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When someone dies physically, the Word of God likes to refer to them as being asleep simply because the Word of God is unambiguous about the fact and the reality that physical death is not the end of the story for a person who has died in this world. Not only will their soul live for eternity, but in fact there is coming a day when their body will be raised to immortality as well. That's what Paul means there in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 20 when he assures us that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Not only was Jesus raised from the dead on the third day after his death, not only did Jesus conquer death in the grave in his glorious resurrection, his resurrection from death was the first fruits of our resurrection and victory over death in Him which is to come. So that's what I'd like to think about with you today from the Word of God. And we're going to do that by by taking a look both at this story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave, and then we're also going to take a look in, in survey fashion at Ezekiel's prophecy in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 37, and the wonderful picture of new life that God paints in that chapter. But let's start, and again, we're going we're gonna to survey this story in John chapter 11 together. It's kind of a long passage. We're not going to get into every single statement, but we're going to look at the main point of it this morning. This story took place not very long before Jesus' own resurrection from the dead took place. In John chapter 11, Jesus had made his way. He had been living and ministering and teaching and healing and doing all kinds of miraculous things up in the region of Galilee. And then he knew that the time of Passover was at hand and he needed to make his way down from Galilee in the north to Judea in the south in order to be a part of that Passover celebration week there in Jerusalem and in the temple because that was when he needed to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, as Jesus was traveling down from the north, he came near to the village of Bethany, which is just across the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. And as he came near to Bethany, he learned that his dear friend Lazarus was desperately sick. Verse 1 says that. And when Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, sent for Jesus, look at this, what he said to them was this. He said in verse 4, This illness that Lazarus has does not lead to death. And verse 5 says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and so, and the so there means because. Because he loved them, 
when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then we know what happens next in the story, right? Lazarus did, in fact, die from this illness. So see, is, is it not quite adding up in your brain? Jesus knew that Lazarus was going to die, he, even though he said what he said in verse 4. He knew that Lazarus was going to die because in verse 11 he says, Our, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And verse 13 makes it clear that he's not just talking about literal sleep. He meant, again, using sleep as a figure of speech. He meant that Jesus or that Lazarus had died. Jesus knew this whole time that this would be the outcome. Lazarus was going to die. And he knew when Lazarus did, in fact, die. And so this begs the question in our minds, why? Why did Jesus say in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death? And why, if he knew Lazarus was dying, why, when it says that he loved Lazarus and loved Lazarus' sisters, why did he, if he knew Lazarus was dying and if he loved them, why did he stay where he was for two more days instead of going to Bethany in order to be with them, right? How do you make sense of all that? How do you make sense of verses 5 and 6? Jesus loved Martha. And her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was desperately ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was instead of going. Strange, right? Wouldn't you expect it to say something like, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he dropped everything and hurried to Bethany to be with them. But that's not what Jesus did. He knew how sick Lazarus was, but he said the illness didn't lead to death. Why? He deliberately didn't go to him. Why? And John records that his love for them was why he didn't go to Bethany for two more days. What's up with that? Well, the clues are sprinkled all throughout the story here. Verse 4, he said... This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So, yes, Jesus absolutely knew that Lazarus was going to die. Verses 11 and 13 prove that. But Jesus also knew that death was not the end of the story for Lazarus. He knew that Lazarus's death was for the ultimate purpose of Lazarus's resurrection. And he knew that Lazarus's resurrection also served a much greater purpose even than Lazarus's own life. So that by raising Lazarus from the dead, the son of God might be glorified, verse 4 says. So that Jesus own power so that Jesus' own dominion as God might be put on display and everyone might see and know and behold what it was that he had come here to do in death and in resurrection. So in verse 11 he says to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So at first the disciples took him 
too literally there, right? They said, well, well Lord, if he's just fallen asleep, they don't, they don't get the wordplay. They don't get the euphemism. Well, Lord, if all it is is that he's fallen asleep, then he'll recover. If he just passed out from his illness, he'll get better. Why do we need to go there? It's dangerous to go there. People are trying to kill you everywhere you go. He'll wake up on his own. So verse 13, Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death, but they thought he meant that Lazarus was taking rest in sleep. So Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And then another clue, verse 15, he says, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there to prevent him dying, see? So that you might believe. So they go to Bethany. And when they get to Bethany in verse 21, Martha cries out in faith to Jesus. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knows. This is how much faith she has in who Jesus is and what Jesus is able to do. You could have healed him, Lord. She's seen him heal so many people already. Jesus says to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Now she thinks he means not today, but in the last day. When the trumpet will sound and the dead will rise, like 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. When Jesus returns and all of the dead will be raised. That's what she thinks he means. So she says, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I have confidence in that, Lord. And that sets up the key statement in this story where Jesus says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asks her, do you believe this? Not just that he'll be raised on the last day, but do you believe this? Knowing that this meant him. Do you believe this about me? Do you believe that I am the resurrection? Do you believe that I am the life? Do you believe that faith in me leads to everlasting life? This is the question that Jesus poses, not just to Martha, but to all of humanity. Do you believe that only through faith in Jesus can everlasting life come? Listen, all have died, and death came into this world because of sin. And all of us are dead in our sins and trespasses in a very real sense. And all of us are subject to physical death. And God has set eternity in all of our hearts, the Bible says, in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And what that means is that all of us have a sense that there must be something more than this world. All of us have a longing for something more than than is left for us in this life. All of us feel the fear of death. All of us feel the despair and the pain of death. All of us long to escape it somehow because God has set eternity in our hearts. And the same God who set eternity in our hearts and made us long for something permanent, something lasting, something eternal, 
something of more worth and value even than everything in this world because everything in this world is, is subject to rot and decay and it all crumbles and it all falls to dust eventually and it all goes away and none of it is, is worthy of sustaining any kind of lasting hope or meaning in our lives. The same God who has set that reality in our hearts and made us long for something eternal is proclaiming that the only way to find it is through Jesus who is the resurrection and who is the life. Victory over death isn't just something Jesus is capable of doing. It's who He is as the eternal, immortal God. It's what He came to do in giving life to the world. So further down in this story, in John Chapter 11, they go to the tomb. Lazarus has died. He's been buried in this tomb. Verse 35 says that Jesus wept for his dead friend. We knew he was going to die and he knew he was going to be raised. Why is he crying? Because he cares. Because he's, a, he's the incarnation of the God who, whose very nature is steadfast love and, and mercy and who's full of compassion. His heart was deeply, deeply moved, it says there in verse 33, that Lazarus had died and that Mary and Martha were devastated by that. He was greatly troubled as the God-man. Even though he, he purposely didn't come and, and keep Lazarus from dying, which he could have done. Even though he knew in the fullness of his deity that, that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, still Jesus in the fullness of his humanity wept because he loved Lazarus. Some of the onlookers even say, well, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? They've seen Jesus do miraculous things. Why didn't he come? Why didn't he save Lazarus? Why? Well, of course Jesus could have done it that way. But see, that would not have been the most loving thing for the Son of God to do. Just to heal Lazarus and prevent him from dying wouldn't have been the most loving thing. So deeply moved again, verse 38, Jesus calls for them to, to roll the stone away from the opening of the tomb in which Lazarus has been buried. Verse 39, Martha warns him, look, he's been in there for four days. We all know what happens when somebody's been dead for that long. There's going to be an odor. Don't open the tomb. And Jesus said to her, not in a scolding way, but in a comforting way, gentleness and, and tenderness in his voice. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Watch this, sister, he says. And they removed the stone and Jesus prayed and then cried out with a, Lazarus, a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And just like that, right? No pretext here, no fanfare here. John simply records as a matter of pure historical fact and record, the man who had died came out. Lazarus who had died came out. His hands, his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. These were grave clothes. He's been in there four days, dead, decaying, no life. There's, in other words, there's no question about Lazarus' condition. 
There's no doubt he's not just been sleeping. He wasn't just in a coma. He, he's not just been unconscious all this time. There's no glimmer of life in him until the Son of God glorified Himself and put the power of God on display and called the dead to live and the dead obeyed. Because that's the authority that Jesus wields. And Jesus said at the end of verse 44 there, unbind Him and let Him go. That means get all these grave clothes off of Him because He's not dead. He shouldn't be dressed like a dead person anymore. In those days they would wrap the body tightly from literally from head to toe in strips of cloth around and around and around before laying it in the grave. And so here comes Lazarus. It's almost a comical picture. He's all wrapped up like a mummy. He's been raised from death and Jesus says as he's laying there in the tomb, come out and he, and he pulls himself up. And he stumbles out of that tomb all wrapped up in the clothes of the grave. A cloth over his head and he can't see. It's restricting his breathing. They're wrapped all around his arms and his torso and his legs and his feet. It's restricting his movement. He comes stumbling out of there. Heeding the call of Jesus because Jesus is the Lord of life. Is this not such a great picture for those of us who have been raised to newness of life in Christ? Those grave clothes had no place on the body of a living person any more than the vestiges of sin have any place in our lives. I remember when I lived like I was just wrapped up in grave clothes. I remember when I was dead in trespasses and sins. I remember when I didn't believe and I only did what was right in my own eyes and I only answered to the impulses of my own flesh and sinful desires. I only lived to please myself ultimately. I didn't give any honor or glory to the God who made me. I suppressed His truth in my unrighteousness because I didn't want Him to to rule as the Lord over every aspect of my life. And then one day, literally without anything I could do about it, any more than Lazarus could have done anything about his own condition, literally like a bolt of lightning, the gospel spoke life into my dead soul. And I believed That this is the Word of God, that He is the God of the Word, and that He is the Lord of life. And then every day since then, and that was back in 1980-something, He's been saying to me, get these grave clothes off, Steve. Take these sinful habits off. Strip it all away. These things have no part of your life. And every time he unwinds one of those bands of linen cloth, of of sin and death from me, and I can see more, and I can breathe more, and I can move more, and I can run and walk by faith more in an unrestricted fashion for his glory, every day I know more and more about the freedom. I thought it was freedom before. I'm doing what I want to do. It's my life. I marched to the beat of my own drum. I thought I was free. I wasn't. I was bound up in grave clothes of sin and death. And only when he spoke life into my soul did I know what it is to be free. A guy who jumps out of an airplane without a parachute thinks he's free also. He's flying like a bird. He's unrestricted. Right? He doesn't realize 
He's not free. He is a slave to the law of gravity and to the certain death that is coming when he meets the ground. You're only free when God says, mount up with wings like eagles by my grace and soar. And this is what Jesus illustrates here by raising Lazarus from the dead. One day he'll raise us physically from the dead like he raised Lazarus. There's coming a day on which Jesus will return and call everyone who have died to be raised physically, bodily. 1 Corinthians 15 makes that very clear. 1 Thessalonians 4 makes that very clear. Just like he raised Lazarus from that tomb. Just like Jesus himself was raised physically as the first fruits, there will be a further resurrection of all who have died. And for those who have died in him, having lived their lives in faith in him, that coming resurrection of the body will be unto everlasting life, both body and soul, with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth where His power and victory over death will make all things new, not just our physical bodies, but everything that is subject to decay will no longer be subject to decay. The entire universe will be new. But even now, while we await that day and await the return of Jesus and the resurrection of our bodies and the universal new creation of the new heavens and the new earth, where we will always be with Him, even now, in great anticipation of that, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ has already brought us from spiritual death in our sins and transgressions unto newness of life in Him, if we are in Him. And just like Jesus, after He raised Lazarus from the grave, commanded those grave clothes to be taken off of Lazarus because they have no place on somebody who's alive. They encumber, they restrict life. So He commands that all who have been buried with Him in baptism and raised to newness of life put off all of that old fleshly sinful stuff, all the habits, all the patterns that characterized us when we were dead in our sins and trespasses and learn to run with endurance unencumbered by all of that stuff. That's what Hebrews 12 is talking about. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. He's picturing, a, he's picturing an athlete running in a race and the athlete doesn't want to be dressed like men of the day were typically dressed back then in these big robes that went down and all around their feet. If you try to run in that, you're going to get caught and you're going to trip and you're going to fall. And he says, you've got to get all of that off you so that you can run and run with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. All of that, see, is what is so powerfully portrayed here in the raising of Lazarus from the death by him who is the resurrection and the life. And it's also portrayed very, very potently in the Old Testament in this great vision that God gives to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 37. I want you to turn there with me. It's a little strange, but we're just going to do these two passages of Scripture because... 
they go so well together here on Resurrection Sunday. Turn to Ezekiel 37. Look at verse 1. Again, we're just going to survey this together today. We don't have all day. God showed Ezekiel in the Spirit a vision of a great broad valley and a terrible, horrific scene of this valley being filled with death, total death. The Hebrew word for valley means a great broad plain. This isn't just a little plot of land. This is a big, great, expansive valley, many, many square miles. It's a big area. And it is, verse 1 said, full of bones. So this valley that Ezekiel sees is full of death, is full of decay. This isn't an actual geographical place. It's a vision that God would commonly give to His prophets in order to illustrate something. It's a symbolic picture of the spiritual state that the nation of Israel was in in these days. Which is a picture of the spiritual state that all humankind is in, in our sin. So that much is clear from verse 11. It's not a geographical place. God interprets the vision and says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. See, they represent Israel. Israel says, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off. Cut off from what? Cut off from God. Cut off from life. Cut off from hope. Because of sin. Because they hadn't honored Him. Because in their worship, they weren't loving Him. Because in their lives, they weren't glorifying Him and pleasing Him. In verse 2, Ezekiel says that God took Ezekiel in this vision and led him around among the bones. It's kind of morbid, right? What's, what's, what, why is God doing this? Literally in Hebrew, God is leading him back and forth zigzagging around across this sun-scorched valley and he's having to walk over all of these bones so as to see, right? What's the point? The point, very simply, is that there must be no mistake about the deadness and the extent of death in this valley. See, it's not just a place where there's a lot of sick people. It's not just a place where there's a lot of people who are really down on their luck and you might be able to read them a motivational speech and they might get inspired to come and follow you and make something better of their lives. The point is here, looking at all of these bones, is that Ezekiel is is shown and knows for certain that there isn't so much as the slightest flicker of life anywhere in that valley. It's not just corpses, right? It's, it's, it's literally bones. All that remains is bones and the bones are very dry. So there's no doubt. We're not talking about, again, uh, a situation of spiritual sickness here. Israel in their hearts, in their souls, they're dead. Dead means completely unresponsive. And that's how they were to God. God kept saying over and over, hey, follow me, trust me. 
No response. Just like Lazarus, he wasn't just sick. He wasn't literally sleeping in that tomb for four four days. This, This valley isn't full of unconscious people or even comatose people who might snap out of it. They're dead. And as Ezekiel is standing there surveying the scene, God asks him, and this seemed, it must be a rhetorical question, right? God asks him in verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? Can they live? I mean, the whole point has been to show how dead they are. They, they haven't lived in a very long time. On their own, they're not going to live. Now, Ezekiel's no dummy. He knows that raising the dead wasn't unheard of in the Old Testament. It had happened before by the power of God through the prophets. Elijah and Elisha both raised people from the dead. But in those cases, the people had just died. Their bodies hadn't decomposed yet. In one case, in 2, Corinthians, or 2 Kings rather, verse 13, a man had died and, and he was being buried right after he died. And as he was put into Elisha's grave... When his body touched Elisha's bones, he came to life and stood on his feet again. But see, never before in the Old Testament had someone been brought back to life after all that was left was bones. Not even Elisha. And I think if anyone else was standing where Ezekiel stood and looking out there at all those bones, they'd conclude that the point of this vision was for God to communicate that this was it. No, they can't live. Yes, they're completely dead, and that's it. They're doomed. There's no hope for them. God's saying, look, no life, right? They can't live, right? They can't change their ways, right? They can't pick themselves up and turn things around, right? Of course they can't. The answers are resounding no. There's no hope. End of story. Ezekiel knows better. Because it's never the case with God that there is no hope. Things look grim. But when God asks him, can these bones live? Ezekiel can't quite bring himself to say no. And the reason is because his understanding of reality and of the way things work, the, the way things happen typically in this world goes way, way beyond the laws of nature and what we normally see every single day, right? We all know because eternity's been set in our heart that at least if we're honest, that it's pretty foolish to say the only things I believe exist are the things I can see and understand with my puny mind. Ezekiel's seen enough of God's glory and majesty and power and action. He's seen enough of the the majesty of mystery in this world to simply say, no, these bones can't possibly live to God. He also doesn't emphatically say yes either, does he? Because he knows God enough to to know that the real question isn't if God can bring these bones to life, it's whether God wants to do that. So Ezekiel just answers, oh Lord God, you alone know whether they can live. And immediately God responds, verse 4, he says to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, preach to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. 
I will lay sinews upon you. I will cause flesh to come upon you. I will cover you with skin and put breath into you. And you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So God's judgment, which Israel had endured because of their sin, not the end of the story for Israel. Because God's not finished with his people. He has a greater purpose. And it is a gracious purpose to give them a hope. And the hope that God has in store for them has nothing to do with what they're capable of in themselves. It's got everything to do with what he's capable of as the God who is both almighty and all-merciful. It's what he's going to do when he causes breath to enter their spiritually dead souls and cause them to live again. The Hebrew word for breath is the word ruach. Fourteen times that word appears in these 14 verses in Ezekiel 37. It's the same word that God speaks in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 where God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, ruach. And then man became a living soul, a living creature. That same word, ruach, is translated breath sometimes, and it's translated spirit oftentimes. Same word that God uses in the previous chapter of Ezekiel, chapter 36, where he promises this. He says to Israel, I will give you a new heart. The problem was in their heart, right? Not just their outward actions. A new spirit, Ruach, will I put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, Ruach, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see? This is what life is. Just as God breathed the breath of life into Adam in Genesis 2, Adam then became a living soul, so the same God is going to breathe new life into the dead souls of His people here by filling them with His Holy Spirit so that they will live. And how is God going to do that? By what means? What does He command Ezekiel to do? Literally prophesy over the bones. Speak the Word of God to the dead, dry bones. Preach to the bones. Seems ridiculous, right? I tell you what, one day in 1980-something, somebody preached to the bones to me, and they came alive. Now, isn't this how the universe came into existence in the first place, according to the Word of God? By the power of the Word of God. Let there be light. It's not the case that nothing created everything. It's the case that the God of the universe created everything. And he did it by the power of his voice. It's the same power that caused Lazarus to be raised from the dead. The power of Jesus' voice. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus could not have done otherwise. Same power by which Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Of all the energy sources in the entire universe, the human body and the energy that it produces, everything that it's capable of doing, it's a a miracle, it's a marvel 
the automobile, the power that an engine is able to produce, a, a jet aircraft, a volcano, a nuclear weapon, a massive amount of power, the sun, the energy that's released from the sun every second is unfathomable. Put all of the most powerful forces in all of the created universe together, combine all their energy and power and realize the power of God's voice, His spoken word transcends them all by an infinite measure. When God speaks, there's literally no limits to what happens. Ezekiel illustrates that when he he simply does what God tells him to do. He prophesies. He speaks the word of God. The results are immediate, just like they were at the tomb of Lazarus. Verse 7, I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, and here's where the skin on Ezekiel's neck stands up, right? There was a sound. Behold, a rattling. The bones started to come together bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews forming on the bones. Flesh came upon them. Skin covered them. Just like the creation of Adam out of the, out of the dust of the ground. As Ezekiel preaches the word of God to the bones, they start attaching, and then sinews and flesh start to come, but still they're laying there. Just, just like Adam did after God formed him out of the dust. They don't live yet. There's no breath in them, verse 8 says. No ruach, no life yet. And so God says, prophesy, verse 9, prophesy to the breath. Say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And again, That's this vision that Ezekiel is given is interpreted by God very specifically in verses 11 through 14. These bones are the house of Israel. They're spiritually dead. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We're cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves, raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. They have a hope. They have a future, it is sure, it is guaranteed, but not by anything that they can do. Because they're dead, and they know it. This is, again, like we said on Good Friday, what makes the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ singularly unique. It's not an appeal to people who are sick to fix it to go get the medicine and take it and do all of the right things and learn how to improve their lives. It's a message to people that are dead, that can't do anything, and that need God to do everything. In Genesis 2, Adam went from being basically a, a, a clay statue lying on the ground to a living creature when God put his spirit into him. And then when Adam and Eve disobeyed, 
and sinned against God in the garden, the penalty was death. Separation from God and from the Spirit, from the life of God, being cut off, cast out from God's presence. That was Israel's situation. Because of their sin, they were cut off from God's life-giving presence. They were without hope. That's the spiritual condition that we all share by nature. None of us live spiritually by nature. We're all dead in our sins and trespasses, Paul says in Ephesians 2. We're not sick. We can't help ourselves. No one in this world can help us. We're not spiritually unconscious or or comatose so that some external stimulus might rouse us. Dead means dead. That means in relationship to the God who made us spiritually, we come into this where we're totally unresponsive to Him. In the same condition that Lazarus was physically in that tomb as those dry bones were in that broad valley. And so on Resurrection Sunday, this is all what the resurrection of Jesus means for us. It means for us who who stand here and sing, Christ the Lord is risen today, and proclaim hallelujah about that. That we also sing, Jesus lives and so shall I. He's called me to newness of life. There's coming a day when my body will be raised and made imperishable when Jesus returns. But already, I've been made to be a new creation in Him. Already, He's breathed His Spirit into my spirit and given me life in my soul that was once dead. He's called me out of the tomb. He's called me out of my spiritual deadness. He's called me to be stripped of the grave clothes that I thought were freedom. But now that I'm alive, I realize how foolish that vision of freedom was and that all I was was a corpse who had no freedom at all. I was just just bound and enslaved to sin and to death until He gave me life and hope. And now He calls me to go forth and to live by faith in Him in the righteousness and the holiness that characterizes life. He wants me to run unencumbered by all of the sin that clings and trips me up. He wants me to run with my eyes fixed on Him until the day when He returns. And in that way, every single Lord's Day, every single day, is Resurrection Day if you're a Christian. A day of celebrating, a day of rejoicing, a day of living in the resurrection and the life that Jesus is. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and He's the resurrection and He's the life. Now I go around this life and in this world and it's full of death, it's full of decay. It's like a valley of dry bones in this world. And somehow... That becomes tempting. Somehow I look down and I go, oh, I remember these old grave clothes. I used to wear these sinful habits. And I go, well, what if I put these on again? How do, you, how, do you, how do you keep from doing that? How do you resist that temptation to put on the old deeds of the flesh? Well, you look to the resurrection and the life. You recognize the greater glory, the greater beauty 
so that all of the old sinful habits, all of the old sinful patterns, all of the old grave clothes will appear to you as, as putrid as they actually are. Because you have your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author of faith and is the perfecter of faith. All of the pride. We're not just talking about things we do and words we say. For me, mostly, I, I, I recognize intimately all of the bad things and all of the bad words come from bad attitudes. It comes from my pride. It comes from me saying, it's my life. It's got to be my way. I want what I want. Those are the, the tightest bonds of grave clothes that there are that God would rip from me and say, no, you're not here for you. It's not you who, your life has been bought, purchased. You have been made a temple of my Holy Spirit. You belong to me. You exist for my glory. You exist for my purposes. And the freedom that comes from knowing that I can simply devote myself to him and his glory and his kingdom and his righteousness by his power, by his strength, by his grace, and let him attend to all of the cares of my life that I'm so consumed with and worried about. The freedom of letting him be the God who he is in all of his power and faithfulness frees me from all of the bondage of my pride and selfishness and greed. Fills me with the joy of the Lord that is my strength. As he says, get those grave clothes off of him and let him go live. So Christians today, resurrection day, Jesus has called you out of the tomb. Jesus has called you to get the grave clothes off. Jesus has called you to run unencumbered with endurance. Fix your eyes on him. And go as one of the exceedingly great army who has been raised and have confidence in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring life from death. And go out into this world and proclaim to people that in Christ alone is life. Let's pray together today and then let's continue to worship Him and let's come to the table and rejoice in all that He is for us. Our God and our Father, we are so grateful for resurrection and for life. We recognize with the Apostle Paul that unless Jesus had been raised, there is no hope that we are still left in our sins and that all is vain. But Father, we know that it is not vain because indeed Christ has been raised and we have been raised to newness of life in Him. And so Father, would You fill us with confidence? Would You fill us with hope? Would You fill us with joy? Would You help us to taste and see the great freedom and the goodness of living not for sinful self, but for the glory of Christ in whom we live? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Page 12, let's all stand together in response and sing, Jesus lives and so shall I.